hey, Pastor Doug here. I'm not here this week. Uh, I'm, at, I'm in Israel, and I'll be back in two weeks, but we're so glad you're here at FBCO. In fact, in two weeks, I'll be starting my series on the book of Revelation. I'm going to preach through the book of Revelation, so I hope you'll join me. That's November Sunday, November the 6th. It's the time change Sunday. It's a great day to be here, a great day to invite guests, and a great day to get involved in a life group, one of our small group Bible studies we call life groups. We'd love for you to participate in those ways. And if you're a guest, we're welcome, we want to welcome you today. Glad you're here. Hope you'll have a great time. Um, I want to remind you, too, that we have in the pews in front of you the commitment cards. We're giving above and beyond our ties to a building program starting next month. And if you uh, would just pray about what God wants you to do as we build a new building and do the renovations in the worship center and beyond, just pray about what God wants you to do. We give our tithe to the church budget. That's how we do our mission and ministry. But many of us will give beyond that to the building program. And God's going to bless and use that and make it a spiritual decision. Ask God what he wants you to do. And we think that's the right way to do it anyway. God will honor that. Well, this Sunday, I'll be praying for you as I'm out, but I do want you to uh, welcome today our guest uh, preacher. It's actually, he's been, he, he's been here a long time. Obi Dalrymple is preaching today. Obi is our pastor to young adults. He came here as a young man, a young airman, and got called to ministry here and has been serving as our pastor for young adults for the last several years, and we're just delighted to have him preaching today. So you join me in welcoming to FBCO today, Obi Dalrymple. Well, good morning, church. Good to be here. And so as Pastor Doug said, he is in Israel. Getting a lot of feedback. All right. He is in Israel. And uh, one thing that he just wanted to point out, and I know he said it there, but in your pew in front of you, you'll have these cards. And there's a reason we're not saying start giving right now. Uh, you could, of course, give to the building program really for the last couple of years. Uh, but we want this to be a prayerful and spiritual decision. So we ask you to just take one of these cards, take it home, pray about it, and, and consider how God might have you invest in the future of this church. Um, so I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra. And I think our notes say Ezra chapter, one, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, but it's actually Ezra chapter 3, verse 10. So Ezra chapter 3, verse 10. We're going to cover verses 10 through 13 in Ezra chapter 3 today. Um, to begin with, I want to kind of start telling you about uh, a little bit about my story and call to ministry. Uh, we're, we're calling this today building a foundation a little bit because, um, well, we're entering a building program. But, but then also, I, uh, I have this practice that I do with my kids each day as I take them to the school. And I, it's one that I'd uh, recommend to you parents if your kids are still at the age where you drive them to, to school. Uh, we just listen to one, one chapter of the Bible every day on the way to school, and then we talk about it. I don't do too much, and maybe when you get to Psalm 119, maybe split it up into sections, but, but just listen to, it's about four to six minutes of Bible on the way to school, and then we talk about it. And so part of the reason I'm preaching on what I am today is because this has been kind of my quiet time with my kids each day. We just finished the book of Ezra, and Ezra chapter 3 just really stood out to me. And, and really, for this reason, I, I asked this question, when you see the work of God, do you celebrate? And we'd all say yes, I think, immediately. Yeah, I see the work of God, so I, I celebrate. But I actually think we don't oftentimes. And so we're going to see that um, both in the passage we cover in Ezra chapter 3, but also in my own testimony. So I'll, I'll just start by sharing a little bit about how I came to the ministry. So I felt called to be a pastor very early on. I gave my life to Christ at seven, and then by age 12, I really felt a, just a sincere and clear calling to be a pastor. But then I went through my high school years, and it kind of 
kind of had a lukewarm phase. I didn't go crazy, do anything too bad, but, but I was ignoring my call to the ministry. So because of that, I didn't know what I, I was supposed to do with my life. So I tried a few things, uh, college, flight lessons, a couple different things, and nothing satisfied because I was ignoring the thing that God wanted me to do. And so it took me enlisting in the military. I was in the Air Force for four years. I was a contractor for six years, five, six years after that. Um, but right away at basic training, God put some people in my life. And it wasn't people that necessarily um, encouraged me to, to follow God. It was people that had questions. And so right there one night at basic training on Firewatch, I led this guy to Christ. And that was kind of the reawakening. Uh, it was a path that I was going to go on, but reawakening of my life to surrender to the call of ministry. And so I get here to this church. Uh, I was stationed at Scott, get here to this church, and I've had uh, just the privilege of uh, Pastor Doug and Tom Dawson, both being just phenomenal mentors to me through the years. Uh, Pastor Doug and I mentioned last week that I was Pastor Doug's intern, and I did research for his sermons, and so I think some people thought that me and I wrote his sermons, and I'll just tell you this, uh, I didn't even have my first Bible degree then. He has a PhD, so I promise you he ignored most of my notes. Um, however, what it what it was and what I so appreciated about our pastor is he was investing in a young man. He saw someone who was called to be a, a minister, and so what he did was he would give me his, his message, like titles and passages early, and then he'd just have me kind of research alongside him, and I'd send him, send him things that I read about that were interesting about the passage. And uh, to be honest, I think there was only one time that I ever remember hearing something like, hey, I may have... I may have researched that, but then again, it was a very like prominent fact about the book. It was about the Gospel of John. I was like, but then again, he probably read that, <laughs> that too. So, so one time, but what it was, it was an investment in me. And so uh, I came to this church and, and surrendered to the call of ministry. And what I'd like to tell you is that, um, or what I, what I would have wanted at the time, was that it was just this clear point A to point B path to ministry. And I'm going to tell a little bit about this call as we go throughout uh, the different passages today, but I'm, I'm just going to start out by saying it wasn't that. And I've had the opportunity to share with several people who are going uh, or feeling called to the ministry, kind of my path. And so I just thought it might be beneficial today because I want to start off reading 1 Corinthians 9.22, and, and I want to ask us as we read this, do we mean this? So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22 will be on the screen. You don't have to look it up. Only Ezra 3 is the only one you have to look up. Everything else will be on the screen for you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22 says this, To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I might by every means, possible means, save some. I'm going to read that again. I, I want you to think through this with me. Do we mean this? To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Do we mean this? Do we mean this, that there will be instances where I have to go out of my comfort zone, I have to do something I don't like for the purposes of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we mean this, that by every means possible, morality included, right, morality principles, godly principles, we, we keep those, but by every means that doesn't violate those things, do we mean that, that we believe that reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ is that important that I'll get discomforted, that I'll do things that I don't like, that I'll do things that go against my preferences. And so I have this thesis question for us today. When you see the work of God, do you celebrate? And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I think the answer oftentimes for us is no. 
So let's go ahead and look at Ezra chapter 3, verse 10. Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, we're going to get a little context. So Ezra chapter 3, verse 10 says this. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph, holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord, as King David of Israel had instructed. Now I'm going to like I said, give you a little context, because when this says, as King David of Israel had instructed, they're not saying right then he gave the instruction. David's long gone by this time. So in fact, um, I'm going to have up on screen First Kings, but the temple was built, the original temple, so this is talking about in verse 10, the builders had laid the foundation. They're talking about a new temple, because the original temple had been built around 950-ish BC. And so 1 Kings is going to be up on the screen. I'm going to read from chapter 7 and chapter 8. So it says this, So all the work King Solomon did in the Lord's temple was completed. Then Solomon brought in the consecrated things of his father David, the silver, the gold, the utensils, and put them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. So here's the first thing that happens. They finish this temple, this amazing, amazing edifice for God. It's this amazing, amazing structure that's going to be the religious symbol, the, the symbol of national pride for them. But they start off by putting treasures in there. It's an interesting thing about this time period that when they had some big building like this, whether it be a palace or a temple, they would use it as a treasury. So they'd store all sorts of treasures in there, which of course, when a, a kingdom comes and ransacks your temple, that's why they're able to steal a lot of the treasures, is because they put consecrated things, silver, gold, utensils, in the treasury. All right, now chapter 8, verse 1. It says, as that, At that time, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the tribal heads and the ancestral leaders of the Israelites before him at Jerusalem in order to bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from the city of David, that is Zion. So, verse 6, the priest brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple by the most holy place beneath the wings of the cherubim. All right, so not only is this temple a symbol of national prominence, pride, spirituality, things like that, not only does it have all your treasure in it, but also they bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. So this great agreement of the Old Testament between God and man, God and this nation of Israel, this, this Ark that has the covenant within it, they bring that there as well. All right, now look at verse 10. When the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is around 950-ish B.C. And then Israel has this kind of interesting but turbulent history. So it's going to be 360 years later we're going to read next. But in this 360-ish years, some things are going to happen. So this is Solomon's temple. Immediately after Solomon dying, the country is ripped in two into Jeroboam and Rehoboam, right? So immediately after this. And then the next 360 years are going to be sometimes there's a good king, sometimes there's a bad king. And the nation of Israel, it rises or falls based on is this a godly king or is it not? Is God judging the nations or is he not? And so 360 years later, approximately, uh, there are actually several attacks. Um, Israel, the southern kingdom, was attacked and eventually destroyed in three waves. So 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and then 586 or 587 B.C. And so what we're about to read is the last one. So they've already suffered two attacks at the hands of the Babylonians, and now you get the final one. So it's going to be on the screen, 2 Kings chapter 25. 
and this is around 587 B.C. It says, on the 70th day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, a servant of the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. He burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down all the great houses. The whole Chaldean army with the captain of the guards tore down the walls surrounding Jerusalem. You hear what happened there? Now, there's a lot of things that were destroyed, but the Lord's temple was destroyed. This is something like 360 years later. This is a monumental moment where before you had this great, this great temple that has your treasures there. It has the Ark of the Covenant there, this agreement between God and this nation there. The very presence of God is in this temple. And at this moment in history, 587 B.C., this thing is burned down. So this nation when we pick up in Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, when it says the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, they've been 50 years, 50 years without this great temple that represents everything about their nation. It represents their covenant with God. It represents their wealth, their success, their prosperity. It represents who they are as a people because Israelite is not just an ethnicity. It is a religion. Judaism is a religion. These are the people of God. And they didn't have the house where the very presence of God dwelt. That's what happens here. When we see in chapter 3, verse 10, the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple. This nation that had been overthrown by the Babylonians and now under the rule of the Persians, this nation that didn't have even walls anymore. And no temple for 50 years. They had no place where God's very presence resided among them because of their own sin. God had judged them, and they didn't even really have a country anymore. And now this nation as a people, because of God working in the heart of a foreign king, they lay the foundation of the new temple. Because God works in the heart of a foreign king, so they had been conquered by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, but now the Persians were in rule. And if we were go back, would go back two chapters to Ezra chapter 1, we won't do that today, but verses 1 and 2, we see that the Lord is working on the heart of this new king Cyrus, and he decrees that Israel can go back and rebuild the temple. So fast forward to chapter 3, verse 10, 10, and it says, When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph, holding cymbals, they took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed. It's this monumental moment in the history of the world, but especially for Israel, when this place that holds the covenant, this place that has the very presence of God in it, this national symbol, this national treasure, begins to be built by the laying of the foundation. So let's go on now. Look at verse 11 with me. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. For he is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house has been laid. So they praise God. They should praise God. In this monumental moment, they should praise God. But I want to ask if you relate to these Israelites. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Would you celebrate this early victory, this initial step in progress? Would you still celebrate if the work was incomplete? or didn't look like you thought it would look, 
Or would you worry about finishing it or simply wish that the work were already completed? And I ask those questions because I talk to my worriers out there. I'm a, I'm a worrier, not a warrior, a worrier. Sometimes we worry we're going to be able to complete this. Like, I'd love, God, you just to build it all. I, I'm not going to celebrate yet. We got the foundation, but we've had a foundation before and the thing got burned down. I want to see the whole country be restored. I want us to see all the prominence. I wonder sometimes if we'd wait to celebrate. In fact, by chapter 4, the very next chapter, they're going to have all sorts of problems. They're going to have people who bribe officials to act against the Israelites to frustrate them as they build it. They're going to have people who write the king, because it's a new king by chapter 4. They're going to have people who write the king and say, don't trust these Israelites. Check your historical records. They cause all sorts of problems. They're a warmongering people. They, they're going to cause issues. If you let them build the temple, if you let them go back and start to reconstruct things, they're going to cause all sorts of problems. The Israelites are going to have difficulty, so would we celebrate at this initial step? So I mentioned in my testimony that I came here, um, I was Pastor Doug's intern, uh, I was mentored really well by him and Tom Dawson, uh, just uh, forever grateful to those two men about how they've invested in me, uh, but that wasn't the only thing that they let me do. I preached occasionally on Wednesday nights, um, and then also they put me on the personnel committee. So I was Pastor Doug's intern. And I was on the personnel committee. If you're not familiar with what that does, uh, the personnel committee is kind of responsible for uh, the staff budget, for policies, for things like that. So, so they're kind of the shepherds of the staff and kind of the business management side of the staff. And so I was on, as a young man, I was on this committee. So I'm Pastor Doug's intern. I'm on this committee, and what some probably don't know is my seminary degree is a little different than the typical preacher seminary degree, so oftentimes people get what's called a master of divinity. I got a master of religious education because I've always just been more drawn to the teaching side of preaching, and so that's an education emphasis. Now, I'm telling you this for a reason, because at that time, while I'm Pastor Doug's intern, while I'm on the personnel committee that hires people, while I'm going through a master's of religious education, our associate minister of education resigned. He went to go, he was called to go to a different church. So not the minister of education, that's Tom Dawson, but his associate resigned. And so I'm on this committee that hires people. I'm desiring, and, and by the way, I did ask Pastor Doug permission to share this story. Um, I'm on this committee that hires people. I'm Pastor Doug's intern. I am working on a degree that is directly applicable to this vacancy and so you know what I'm thinking, right? You're thinking it. You're thinking it right now. If you're me, you're like, all right, I'm about to get hired. Finally, God, point A to point B, this was an easy thing. I just came to this base, uh, surrendered to the ministry. I, I ended up getting ordained here. Man, this is going to work out perfectly. And I remember, I remember distinctly that is in a room back there, room 221. I'm sitting there for the personnel committee meeting where we're going to decide on this plan, what's going to happen. And Pastor Doug walks into this room. And he says, I have a plan for this position. He didn't say, Obi, I want you to fill it. He said, we're going to split it seven ways into seven part-time positions. I kid you not. That's not a joke. That's what he said. He walked in there just like, oh, that's like, that's, God's not lining this up for me perfect. Now, here's what I could have done. I could have been upset, mad. I could have been uh, frustrated with Pastor Doug. I could have been frustrated with God. I wasn't any of those things. Pray Praise God, I wasn't any of those things. But I'll tell you what I didn't do. I didn't celebrate. I voted. I voted to say, yeah, if the pastor wants that, then, hey, I trust him. I trust God, so let's do it. 
But what I didn't do is celebrate. I didn't say, God, thank you for making me instead of go from point A to point B, I'm going to have to go point A, B, C, D, and however more, many more letters you want to put in there. I didn't say that. Would you? Would you say, God, thank you for making this, this path to ministry just a little more difficult, a little more out of the way, a little more unknown, unplanned? Would you still celebrate this early victory? The people were there, the builders laid the foundation, and they sang praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. So I was obedient. I was a team player. I trusted Pastor Doug, trust him still. I trust God, but I wasn't celebrating. Israel gave praise, thanksgiving, a great shout, despite it just being a foundation. Sometimes God starts working, and it doesn't look like what we want it to look like. It seems incomplete to us, or it seems like God is making us wait a long time. You ever felt like that? God, I'm just ready for my time. Or people are coming to Christ, but there's too much change along the way, and we don't like it. God, I'm happy to see you work, but, but how it's going about, I'm not comfortable with that, God. I want to see it a little different. Sometimes the person we're praying for remains resistant to the gospel, and maybe they take a small step, but we wish it were more. Sometimes God's work isn't what we thought it would be. In fact, I'll submit this to you. Sometimes God's work looks like the cross. You ever think about that? So the first point, if you're taking notes, is celebrate any time God works. Celebrate any time God works. Even if he's making you wait. Even if he's doing it in a way that you wouldn't have done it. Even if he's taking you from not from point A to point B, but a lot of steps in between. Celebrate any time God works. Let's go to verse 11, or 12 now. So we just saw they laid the foundation, they sang praise. Now look at the first word of verse 12. But. We know that's not going to be good. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly. When they saw the foundation of this temple... But many others shouted joyfully. So you had people singing praise. You had people shouting joy. But many people who had seen the first temple wept loudly. They have uh, on the screen they're going to put Haggai chapter 2 verses 3 through 4. It says this. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? They're talking about the temple. The second temple. Even so... Be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. I butchered that. Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Now listen to this. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. So, do you relate to these Israelites who there's a time of celebration there, a time where God is clearly working and moving, but you've lost something. There's something that you formerly had that you want, something that you are mourning about or grieving about. So as I think of my path to ministry, that I come here, I, even going through basic training, God, God calls me to, to be more than what I am, to, to step out of of my really rebellion and, and surrender fully to him. He calls me from those things. He, he places me in the charge of good mentors who were able to invest in me. And then he throws me the curveball of saying, yeah, but I don't want you to stay here. 
I have somewhere else to go for you. And praise, praise God he did. So what I didn't know at the time is what was going to happen next. So I, left the, I was ordained here, and I, I left this church to go be a youth pastor at a small church in Kentucky. Good, good church, good people, and a youth group that I love to this day. So what happened there, though, is there was a small percentage that were church kids, you know, families in church, a large percentage that were non-church kids, and then another percentage that were from extremely rough homes. I remember a time where I was uh, going to a graduation banquet that I was, I was putting on. I drove a church van, picked up kids, and, and there's uh, this student who they asked me to pick up their mom. And so we drive up to this, this trailer, and it has just this hole in the like, side of it. And I'm just thinking, no one can live there. Surely that's a condemned building. And so the student walks up. They, they talk. They peek their head in the hole in the side of this building, and, and their mom sticks her head out. And it turns out that this mom had a big struggle with drugs, and, um, and right then she's on drugs, and so she misses her own daughter's banquet. I mean, the, not all the students were this way, but I had, I had a healthy percentage, an unhealthy percentage, that, uh, that were going through this kind of thing. So what I think of when I think of that ministry is I think of the names and faces who I had the honor of leading to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I think of this girl who was contemplating suicide and through text message, because she wouldn't let me call her, through text message, God gave me the words to talk her down out of this, this thing she was going to do to herself. I think of this other girl that I led her to Christ and then uh, a couple months later she's, she's struggling with understanding the faith and this conversation that I had to her has been formative in my life and my understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it's it's imprinted the teachings of first john in my mind about the security of salvation that we can have so in first john chapter 5 verse 12 it's a memory verse that all christians should memorize just just memorize it it's an easy one the one that has son, the son has life the one that has not the son has not life i quote it all the time to my young adults memorize that thing because oftentimes what happens when we're thinking about our salvation we're thinking man, I hope I'm saved. I hope I believe good enough. I hope God can forgive me enough. And we forget what it's really about. Do you have Jesus or do you not have Jesus? We either know that we're a sinner separated from a holy God for all eternity in a real place called hell because of our sin. And the only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. We either know that or we don't. We either believe that or we don't. And when we have those moments in our life where we say, well, I hope I believe enough, we, we almost overanalyze our own ability to believe. And when God is just wanting us to trust him, that his grace is sufficient, that his death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient, he says, trust me. In your doubt, trust me. In your weakness, trust me. When you're having those difficulties, trust me. And I came to these realizations by having this conversation with a girl at this church when I had led her to Christ, and she went again and again in sincerity of heart trying to be, trying to be saved. And I said, do you trust Jesus? Because the one that has the Son has life. The one that has not the Son has not life. What I would have missed if I were the planner— if I were the one who said, God, take me from point A to point B. Go make me, go make me this associate minister of education. I'm primed for this. I've, I've got the right mentors. I'm in the position of people who vote to hire someone. I'm the intern of the pastor. God, this is the perfect one for me. What I would have missed if I had been the planner and not God. So here's a question I want you to ask yourself. Are we ever guilty of mourning or grieving while God is building something new? I'm going to read it again to you. Are we ever guilty of mourning 
or grieving while God is building something new. Did you know, statistically, anytime a church makes a significant change, 10% of the people leave. Anytime a church makes a significant change, 10% of the people leave. Now, when I say significant change, I'm not talking about the gospel message or his word. I'm not talking about the, the truth. I'm talking about things like they change their name, they change their logo, they change their style of service. This is, this is across all churches. They've done studies on this. On average, 10% of the church leaves. Are we ever guilty of mourning while God is building something new? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 says this. They're going to put it on screen. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than that has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Sometimes we as Christians, we simply aren't bought, in, bought into enough the gospel. So we're out living life in the world as if the world is not condemned apart from Jesus Christ. But also sometimes within the church, we are most grieved or perhaps even most angry or distracted about non-essential things. I'm here to tell you this morning there is something to mourn in this world. And it's that souls die every day apart from Christ, condemned to an eternity in a real place called hell. And I want to ask you this to resonate on this. Is that the thing that grieves us? Is that the thing that calls us to our fighting passions? Is that the thing that we're ready to raise arms and, and get mad and, and leave a church for? Is it the gospel? I'm asking you today to search yourself for what grieves you, what makes you mad at church, what evokes your fighting passions. Is it Jesus, his mission, and his message? Is it lost souls? Christ is the foundation of our faith. God, his son, his spirit within us, and his word and gospel message, these are the essentials of our faith. So here's what I'm getting to. Sometimes we don't celebrate while God is working. Sometimes we mourn while God is working. Sometimes we fight. Sometimes we get mad while God is working because we're not celebrating the right things. So the second point in your notes is this. Celebrate the right things or you'll mourn. Celebrate the right things or you'll mourn. As we go into this last verse, I'm going to tell you that I had to read it numerous times before I decided to put it as part of the message because I, my mind was fixed on the fact that people celebrated and people wept. You got both parties there. You got some people praising and thanksgiving, and you got some people weeping loudly. loudly. But about, I don't know, maybe it was like the tenth time I read through this passage, I noticed what verse 13 was about. Read it with me, if you will. Verse 13. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping. Church, is that ever us? The people who are listening, and there's a loud cry coming from the church, and some people are celebrating Jesus, and some people are mourning and grieving and angry. Is there confusion going out into the world about the perspective of the church, what we believe and what we care about, and what is our foundation? Is, is there a confusing message going out? Look at the next part. He says, I'm going to read the whole thing again. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping 
because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. Those last seven words, and the sound was heard far away, I'm telling you that people hear your voice. So I'm going to give you three questions to, to continue this kind of introspection that I'm wanting you to do. Three questions to consider. The first one is this, who hears your voice? Who hears your voice? I want everyone to take this question personally. Who hears your voice? I'm going to talk to parents specifically for a second. As we think of who hears our voice, your kids do. Your kids do, and they know what is important to you and what is not important to you. Your kids hear your voice. Students, your classmates do. They hear your voice. Your, your co-workers people, your, your family, you got a lost person in your family, they hear your voice. You got a saved person who you should be a mentor of them, they hear your voice. What I'm saying is the world hears. You have people in your life that hear your voice. So the second question I want you to think about is this, what do they hear you celebrate? What do the people who hear your voice, what do they hear you celebrate? I want to talk to parents again. When you think of your kids, and you, if we just ask your kids this question, you ask them, what do you think is important to me? What is this, the significant thing in my life? What is the thing that, that we say, man, this is what our family is about? I'm going to just ask you. I'm, I'm going to step on your toes a little bit, and I'm, I'm kind of sorry. Is it the sports they play? Is it the instrument they play? Is it the college scholarship you hope that they get? Is it the level of success, the size of your house? Is it the car you drive? Is it, is it some sort of earthly stature? Is it those things? If we say there are people listening and they hear you celebrate, what do they hear you celebrate? I'm asking you, is it Jesus? I'm asking you to, to reflect on your life, not to beat you down in guilt, but to say, man, I'm going to take an assessment of this and say, is it Jesus that people hear about me? Because people are hearing. Because the sound is heard from far away. People see what you care about. They see what you celebrate. And the last question is this, what do they hear you grieve? Is it politics? Is it style? Is it preference? Is it worldly things? What do people hear you grieve? Or is it the gospel? Is it that people aren't responding to the gospel? So the last point is this, celebrate Jesus because people are listening. Celebrate Jesus because people are listening. And if there's someone here today who's listening who's not a Christian, I've been talking about Jesus as the thing that we should have our foundation based upon. And I've admitted that we as Christians oftentimes have all sorts of other things that they act as our foundation. They're not, but they're our pseudo-foundation. They're our false foundation. We, we put our stock sometimes in other things, but if you're not a Christian today, then you've completely put your stock in things other than Jesus. And this matters because this world is temporary. And everything else that you're maybe counting on, betting your life on, it ends. God, his word, and the things he redeems, those are the eternal things. And so one of the mo most important things you could do today is give your life to him. I'm going to tell you how, and then in a second I'm going to give you an opportunity to. So the first thing you do is admit that you're a sinner before God which means you cannot enter heaven apart from him. You're a sinner before God. So you must believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again and that his sacrifice is enough to cleanse you of your sins. And then you make Jesus the master or Lord of your life, meaning you give your life to him. I'm going to give you an opportunity in a second to do that. I'm going to read a final passage from Matthew 7, 
to close. And I want non-Christians to hear it in the way of salvation, about the foundation that Jesus Christ is, the only foundation. He's the one where we can attain eternal life. And I want Christians to read it and hear it as this is how we need to live. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27 says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It's collapsed with a great crash. Don't make anything else your foundation. Let's pray. Father God, I, I lift up my Christian brothers and sisters and myself today, God. So often it is just so incredibly easy to care about things that aren't yours. We get distracted. We get impatient. We live in this world, and so we want to focus all of our time and energy on this world. There's so many things, God, that pull us, your people, off the foundation of Christ. We may be saved by him, but we live as if something else is central, as if something else undergirds us. I challenge every Christian here today to assess that in themselves, to repent if there's anything they've put above the gospel and your word, and to start anew on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And I thank you, God, for being a firm, unshakable foundation that even if everything else in this world goes wrong and we have you, we have all we need. I pray for that peace and stability for the Christians here. And then I pray for someone here today who has never given their life to you. I want to lead them in a prayer that if they're ready to receive you, all they have to do is believe it and repeat after me. And I have them repeat after me because your word in, John, in Matthew, or excuse me, Romans 10.9 tells us to confess with our mouth. So here's what they need to pray. God, I admit that I am a sinner. I believe my sin separates me from you for all eternity in a real place called hell. But I believe Jesus died in my place and rose again. And I ask him to save me and I make him the Lord or master of my life. In Jesus' name. Now, God, if someone prayed that today, then I ask, God, that they wouldn't keep it to themselves. That they would come tell me I'll be at the connection point after. Or they'd come down and talk to the deacon of the week who will be down front. Or maybe they still need further questions. They want to come pray. But if someone prayed that today, God, don't let them keep it to themselves. I challenge them to tell somebody. And then I challenge them to think about taking the next step, which is baptism, which is a testimony of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the first step of obedience. Because if we make you Lord and Master, it means we obey and you tell us to be baptized in your name. Thank you for being our foundation. We give you praise and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.